0: Hello,
1: my name is Blaze Bailey. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attack.
2: Hey, what's up? This is Joey Z from Life of Agony.
1: Hey, this is Tim River Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Dan Lorenzo from Hades, nonfiction, The Cursed, and my horrible solo music. You're listening to my boy Victor on Mars Attack. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns and Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. How you doing? This is Frankie Benelli from Quiet Riot. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks.
2: Hello everybody, this is Michael Kisper Talking, and you're listening to Mars Attacks.
1: Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush and you're cranking
2: it up on Mars Attacks. What's up everybody? This is Ron Scalzo from Return to Earth, and you have the pleasure of listening to Mars Attacks Radio.
0: Episode number thirty-one of the Mars Attacks podcast. I am your host Victor, and before going any further, just want to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes. You can also download or listen to the episode directly from MarsAttacksRadio.com. And uh, like I said, you could download an MP3 format. It format, excuse me, or You can listen to it directly from the website. In any event, this episode contains an interview that I did with Mr. Ron Scalzo, a.k.a. the Bald Freak from Bald Freak Music. Uh, If you've heard any interviews with Bumblefoot in the past, he's referred to them. He's also part of Return to Earth with Coheed and Cambria's Chris Penny and um, Brett, their guitar player, as well. It's a three-piece and a very interesting band. The first track there came off of their first album. I wanted to lay that out there because we'll uh, put tracks from the new album, Automata, in the episode as well. Uh, The thing is, I want you guys to get a taste of where they came from and where they currently are. So it's uh, very interesting. That first track is Get Your Knife. That comes off of... Captains of Industry. I uh, want to also remind you that if you want to drop me a line here, just send an email over to victor at com. You can also follow the Twitter feed, which is MarsAries That is M-A-R-S-A-R as in Robert, I as in... Iron. <laughs> he has an Edward S as in Sam 2005. So if you go to Mars Aries 2005, you know I tend to uh put tweets up there regarding who I just finished interviewing, one new episode is ready, one a new Mars Attacks radio episode is ready. Things of that nature. So yeah, follow us there. We also have a Facebook group. Uh you could click on a link to that directly from the homepage marsattacksradio.com. Uh, before getting into any Return to Earth, because I do want to play some songs off of this Automata album, I also want to play the new Bumblefoot track, which is absolutely amazing. I absolutely love this song. It's really cool because it, you know, it's it, it is hard rock. It's got some like funky swagger to it. Uh, some of the soloing reminds me of. I don't know um early Nuno Bettencourt, and uh with with Ron's twist on it, of course, and Ron wears many hats can plays can play excuse me many different styles of music, so it's great to hear him jump right into this but uh before we get into that, I wanna bring a song to you from a group from here in Spain called Wayne, actually a good bunch of uh buddies of mine uh interviewed them a bunch of times, this group. In my opinion, if they wanted to pursue an active music career could be, you know, the sort of the reference point for bands out of Spain um, just because of how different they are and what they bring to the table. Fortunately for them, the lead singer is also a surgeon and there are other people in the band that are in the medical field, and, you know, like a lot of other bands out there, they don't do this full-time. Nonetheless, I was lucky enough to get the exclusive on a track that they're going to be releasing shortly as part of a split vinyl that will be coming out. They actually sent me two different mixes of the song. Uh, The name of the track is Let Us Kill Ourselves. The name of the band, once again, is Wayne. After this track... What we'll do is jump uh, right on back, talk a little bit more about Ron Scalzo, Return to Earth and all that, play a track from them, and then jump on into the interview. Let us kill ourselves. We'll bring more information forward regarding the band uh, once this split album is out there. It's going to be a vinyl for now. Uh, They're going to be going in and recording a brand new album, a full length, uh, sometime later this year. And I mentioned that they're friends. I should say that they're friends of the show, similar to, you know, Ron Scalzo or Ron Thaw. You know, it's figurative, you know. Uh, Although I've run into them a bunch of times because of the close proximity to uh, where we are located. It's, you know, a business thing. So anyway, yeah. (laughs) Business with me uh, trying to get people to know who they are. That's pretty much it. Uh, Let's jump into some Return to Earth right now. This is the uh, first track off of the new album Automata. It is the title track as well. This is Return to Earth and Automata. How many times do um, people come up to you and try to get GNR stories out of you?
2: <laughs> um, I guess when, when Bumble just had joined the band, especially, and then maybe like the year, you know, we're going on, this was 2006, maybe, so it's been five years now. Right. Um, I was sort of the, the buffer for, you know, once he started getting bombarded on... On myspace and facebook and and everything else, and he kind of had was forced to kind of shut off his interaction with the fans on that level and basically take control of when he wanted to decide to talk to people. I as the quote unquote label was sort of the buffer for that sort of thing, and I would forward over you know most of the correspondence, even though he probably would have preferred i didn 't because i you know i, I I'm not his manager or his agent or anything. It wasn't up to me to kind of filter who he wanted to talk to or not. But um, uh, surprisingly, that is kind of not surprisingly, I guess, because it's been a while. It's kind of it's kind of died down. I mean, every every once in a while, I will get some guy send them an email. Hey, can you can I can we send this guitar to Ron to sign? Or can you know <laughs> can Ron play Rock and Rio and tell Ron to play Rock and Rio in Portugal and stuff like that? And just like he does, you know, I. I filter I laugh I laugh a lot of the the nonsense <laughs> off and the stuff that's important makes uh, eventually makes its way to him but he's kind of become his own you know he's he's had 5 years of practice learning how to handle this alone so and the people at this point know how to get in touch with him he's out there on Twitter and on Facebook and everything so it's right. uh it's been it's been um refreshingly calm lately <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah and and actually People really have to do commend Ron with how easy he is to get in touch with. Um, I actually mentioned this in in a few uh, interviews recently in a post up on one of my sites. Um, how Ron actually responds to people when they address him. And there are so many people up there on Twitter that outside of sort of pushing in your face how great their life is and what casino they're at that day and whatnot or, you know, posting good album reviews – they really don't do anything else to interact with fans or people that actually helped them get to that casino or, or or helped buy that album. I think Ron,
2: um, you know, kind of went on a bit of a crusade as far as he knew, you know, he's well aware of the, the sort of negativity that goes with being in the band as far as the, the late shows and the, and the, the secretiveness of what's going on. And he, um, you know, I don't. He doesn't do it in a selfish way. I think he does it because you know the the fans fuel any band is not a band without fans. Right. And I think he appreciates that and understands that, and, and in, a, in a lot of ways, I think he feels bad for the fans who have had to sit, you know, stand in a sweaty, you know, crowd of people for three hours waiting for a show to start. And um, at the end of the day, I think he decided that you know that he was going to sort of kind of be as much of as an ambassador as he could without you know taking it too far to try to kind of bridge the gap between the band and the fans and um I'm sure he's paid a price you know because not everybody reacts the way you want them to react with some sort of respectability and being a nag or a nudge or whatever you want to call it um, <laughs> right but he you know I commend him for you know for trying to kind of bridge that gap a little bit and I think he's done a pretty good job of it and he certainly certainly hasn't hurt his career in my opinion I think you know the more you you know people it leaves an impression on people, whether it's a kid after a show who you sign an autograph for or just some person you take a picture of or say hi to uh at a show i think uh I think it makes an impact on on fans and and people will remember him for that, not necessarily guns and roses and which as well they should you know he's the one that's making the effort
0: right, I agree a hundred percent um I also have to say that uh one of the best uh interactions that I've ever heard in any type of uh, radio or podcast format actually happened between you and Ron on an episode of talking rock where you described how the two of you met. And um, I listened to it not too long ago uh, for the first time in years. And uh, you mentioned something to the effect of seeing him and and saying, uh, Oh, look at this clown. And his response was, so you think I'm a fucking clown. It was just absolutely amazing. I blew up laughing in the middle of a train and had all these people uh, staring at me. So
2: we have that, you know, we have that sort of, we both have that sort of self-deprecating humor. And uh, right. it's one of those things that, you know, that has have, have bonded us since we, we first met. And, um, it, you know, back when I first met him, I, you know I was 20 years old and when you're 20 years old and you know you you don't look in the mirror as much and say am i a clown you kind of think that everybody else is and right you know just based on you know i had no idea who he was i had no idea about his talent or his ability or that he even played guitar i just saw a guy with a like a crazy wool hat and dreadlocks coming out of it and i'm like you know and, and a clown when i say the word clown i don't use it you know he of course was joking when he, when he when he asked if i thought he was a clown but uh, uh-huh. right I didn't mean it in a derogatory sort of way. It was just like the guy was obviously a character, and sure enough, he was. You know, he proved that mm-hmm. times over when we when we got to know him a little better. But uh, yeah, at the time, that's what really what clown really meant to me. So,
0: <laughs> I guess that's a um, a New York uh, metropolitan area thing. That's a very oh, I, common term that's thrown around.
2: Yeah, you're talking about two guys who grew up in you know who grew up in Brooklyn and, and still live in the New York New Jersey area. So it's part right. of our vernacular, I guess.
0: Yeah, uh, called uh, many a person clown or clown shoes in my day as well. So, <laughs> uh, um, Speaking of social media, um, you're actually one of the first people to congratulate Trent Reznor on his Academy Award win. Um, I found your quote really interesting about uh, him winning the award for the social network, but you had another comment that you had, had added on regarding the soundtrack for Inception. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, I mean, no one waves the Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nails flag higher than me. I've been a fan since, you know, since Pretty Hate Machine and fan of all his albums, even the lesser stuff like Ghosts and and the How to Destroy Angels projects and the stuff that he's done um, outside of Nine Inch Nails. I've, you know, I, I take... Uh, you know, more, uh, more than a a casual interest in everything he does, not because of the way, not because of my real attraction to his music as much as that. I I think that he's been through a lot in the business from, you know, from what I've read with, you know, with Interscope and with with starting the Nothing label. And, um, you know, he's one of those few bands that kind of came out um, or artists that came out from the traditional way of putting out albums with CDs and stuff like that to kind of now in the internet age, being able to kind of write his own ticket, you know, Radiohead would be another example of a band that's, that's done that. But, um, right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I I would, I just wish he would have won for something that I felt was amazing. And I don't, I don't think the social networks score is, is bad. I think it Mm -hmm. certainly added something to the, to the movie, but as far as, you know, the, 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 Oscars and, awards are supposed to be reserved for, you know, the pinnacle. And I remember seeing Inception in theaters and thinking, you know, thinking after I left the movie, um, in spite of all the other, um, you know, all the other stuff about the movie, which was interesting, I thought the score really elevated it to a different level. Whereas I thought the social network score kind of was just, you know, added a little something as opposed to being that much more impactful.
0: You touch on an interesting point there. I'm a big uh, Trent Reznor fan myself. I've seen them a bunch of times or seen Nine Inch Nails a bunch of times in concert. And the soundtrack for The Social Network was honestly the first thing that I didn't jump on immediately. I listened to the tracks that that they offered for free and I never went back and and purchased the, the rest of the album. That said... I mean I listened to uh How to Destroy Angels and absolutely loved you know the clips I was hearing and immediately went out and purchased that, Ghosts and, and other things that he's released over the internet. So I thought it was interesting that he won uh both that and what was the other? The Golden Globes, I guess he won as well. Yeah. He... Um But you know, with some of these award shows you sort of question whether, you know, it's it's really a case of the music or if it's really these award shows trying to make up for years of just screwing things up, you know, saying, well, you know, we know Trent Reznor's hip, so if we give him an award, maybe we'll, you know, get more people on our side now. I mean, I just sort of question uh, that angle, you know, after um, the Grammys and after the Oscars and everything else you know, shitting on so many things over the years, just trying to recoup people by doing something like this.
2: Well, there's always going to be some sort of controversy when it comes to award shows. Everybody points to the Grammys, and everybody from my generation always points to Jethro Tull beating Metallica. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, that's basically become the benchmark for that sort of um, unjust uh, award sort of situation. I mean, I don't really take the awards that seriously anymore. As an independent artist, you kind of you know, it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth to begin with. I thought the Grammys were pretty bold to award, you know, to award Arcade Fire the best album of the year. But again, regardless of if it's Arcade Fire or Lady Gaga, um, you know, the Grammys' responsibility, primarily responsibility, in my opinion, is to is to maintain an audience. And to do that, you have to keep, um, you know, you have to basically keep nominating and, Awarding these awards to artists who kids care about and who teenagers care about and even you know people a little older who are still you know viable in the industry like myself care about and I think in the case of the Oscars it was a situation where you know Trent is is obviously well known by everyone I'm sure there are more than a few Nine Inch Nails fans who are making movies out there and um uh, he when he stopped announced that he was kind of going to stop playing shows with Nine Inch Nails, it seemed like, you know, just for a guy like him and, and hopefully a guy like me someday, the natural progression was to start scoring. And I already know he's, you know, he's scoring the new Fincher movie as we speak.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think, you know, it was a sort of thing where they're trying to establish him by giving the by at least by nominating him and then giving them the award, establishing him as, hey, this guy is going to be part of our industry for a long time to come. So it was almost like, well, it was sort of like a welcome to the club award. Um, whereas Zimmer will be nominated for years and years to come and has been nominated before. And he's that, you know, um, it's really, it, I guess it was a statement about the future of scoring, about how people who are mainstream musicians are kind of turning the corner and finding, you know, Haven safe Haven, as far as, you know, making money in Hollywood to, to do this sort of thing. and, um, listen, I, I congratulate him. I mean, I, I certainly, there's no ill will in my post and, um, yeah. it, it's just about like, which did I think was better? I thought Inception was, was infinitely better and, um, it kind of, I wanted to be, I wanted to like jump up for joy. Trent Reznor, you know, the guy I, you know, I fucking worship, like won an Oscar, but it right. kind of left that b- bitter taste in my mouth that he won for something he shouldn't have won for, you know?
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Um from the composing side of things you mentioned, you'd like to progress into scoring, uh, movies and, and things of that nature. Is there one person from that aspect of music that you sort of hold as the litmus test to say, this is the person you'd inspire to be?
2: Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of, of a lot of film scores. Um, you know, um, some that come to mind are, um, you know, the Bill Conti score for the Rocky soundtrack and, you know, which is a realm of music that I'm not proficient in You know, it's basically a jazz score, you know, the, just a, like a really, really upbeat driving jazz score for most of the, for most of the soundtrack. Um, and it certainly is is known as, as one of the most famous and, and Oscar winning scores. Then of course there's, you know, the John Williams, Star Wars, Jaws, E.T., Era, he's sort of like been the pinnacle, even though he's become sort of a caricature of himself to this generation. <clears throat> you know, you see jokes about him on Family Guy nowadays. But for <laughs> me, for me personally, I mean, there's there's two, and um, the first is Danny Elfman, who, um, you know, who again, here's a guy who came from a not so successful new wave rock band from the '80s. You know, Oingo. Right. Oingo and mm-hmm. continued to make music and struggle into the nineties. And, uh, it was always interesting, but never mainstream. And certainly had its audience amongst, you know, um, you know, people who wore black eyeliner and then leather pants, but, um, <laughs> eventually, you know, he, he turned the corner and he, you know, I mean, his partnership with Danny Elf, um, with Tim Burton alone is, it's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, he certainly took what he was doing in a, in a mainstream way and kind of made it work for movies and, He's written some of the you know, the coolest things I've ever heard in movies. Um, and the other guy is Ennio Morcone, <laughs> who right. has this dramatic uh, appeal to me in everything he does. And he's so versatile. It's not just the spaghetti Westerns. It's not just the Tarantino movies. You know, he did the score to the John Carpenter's The Thing, which is like one of my it's just this pulsing keyboard score. I mean, it's with some it's cellos and violas in it and it's it's just so impactful to me. And he did the score for um, The Untouchables, which mm-hmm. is this rollicking, you know, 1920s prohibition cops and robbers movie. And I, I don't know if it won the Oscar, but it was certainly, you know, it certainly was probably nominated if it didn't win. And he, you know, he, whatever he's a part of, he, he elevates the movie to a different level. And to me, that's what uh, someone who writes a score or, or scores a movie or a television show is supposed to do. And And those two guys for me, if their names are attached to something, it makes me interested, you know, to see the movie without even knowing anything else about it.
0: Okay. Th- there was a question similar to this that I was going to throw at you later on. but um, Yeah,
2: you'll find, talk- my, you'll find that my answers will, ro- <laughs> will usually encompass four of your questions. <laughs>
0: That is, uh, that is very common actually. Yeah. I go into to interview some bands here and say, uh, yeah, I have like 30 some odd questions to ask you. You see these blank stares and then they realize that, you know, most of the times they're answering, uh, you know, four and five questions in one answer. So, right, right. um, So the question is this, if you were able to go back in time and score any movie, (laughs) what movie would you score?
2: Wow. I mean, that's kind of a tough question to answer because it makes you think of movies that have great scores. But why would you want to score that movie when you would never do a better job than the guy who already scored it did? So I'm inclined to think of a bad movie. (laughs) <laughs> that didn't have such a great score, you know, and um, and I, I don't, like, H- Howard the Duck? I mean, I don't...
0: <laughs> right. Ron Scalzo does Action Jackson. Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> and I could make Carl Weathers, you know, like, performance <laughs> pop out that much more just by adding some fine, you know, some fine harp touches here and there. But... Um... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's. I would have to really think long and hard about that. And I just watch the clock ticking, and we will just be standing here. So let me let me <laughs> reserve the right to answer that question at a later date.
0: Okay, I'll hold you up to that too. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, with Return to Earth, uh, you guys received a bunch of good reviews online uh, regarding Automata. Uh what did you set out to do differently between Automata and the first album uh Captains of Industry?
2: I don't know it's it's a question that I get asked a lot um because there is a notable difference in in quality, production value and and depth and uh, aggression between the two records. And you know, we look back on Captains of Industry and we say, you know, I mean at least I say, I can't speak for the other two guys, but at least I say that you know, it was for for what we were trying to do at the time, and for our first effort. You know, you listen to debut albums for most bands, and they don't live up to the potential of later releases. That's not always the case, but generally speaking, I think that's the case because you know bands grow and get to know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and and um, you know learn from their mistakes the first, second, third time around. Um, I don't know if there was anything in particular that we set out to do differently when we started making automata that um that separated separated it from captains. I think we uh you know, the first thing that I remember, the first memory I have of making the record was basically Chris had already written the music for the title track, which is the first track on the album. And I was at Brett's house in his basement where a lot of the, the music making and, and recording is done. And we were, and, and Chris was like, all right, I want to play this for you. And he put it on. And, and, um, you know, I was immediately like, like, you know, it sounded like ministry, Meshuggah. (laughs) Um, it, It had this vibe that the first album just didn't have. I mean, there were elements of, of harder music on the first record, but not anything that intense by any, you know, and probably nothing else on the, on this record, was as intense as that particular song. But um, it was like an eye-opener, like, okay, this is awesome, but this is nothing like the first record. And then they told me, okay, well, we want you to, you know, he, they had kind of like a, a melody idea for, for, the, for the song. They're like, okay, we want you to, to sing. This is what we want you to sing over it. I'm like, okay, that's cool. But I, I had my ideas about how to do it, and then, and then basically Chris and Brett said, no, we want you to scream over it. And I'm like, I'll try. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess what I guess that was really like a, a blueprint for me realizing at that point that like, wow, we're really gonna take take this in a in a different direction. And I was excited about it. I mean, I was I was excited and anxious because I didn't know if I was going to be able to pull it off. Um, but the, the cool thing about this band is that we're all. You know, we all have a certain skill set and a certain talent level. Chris, obviously, you know, is above and beyond as far as his musical abilities. And, you know, I've, I've learned to be able to work with people like that from dealing with Bumblefoot, who, again, is like just blows me out of the water as far as musical ability goes. And um, because of that, it, it makes you, you know, bring your A game. You know, most people, you know, don't even know they have an A game until <laughs> they have to, you know, they have to compete at that level. And for me, it was, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think I'm going to be nominated for, you know, Best Vocalist of, of the Year or anything like that. But for me, it was certainly an apex. It was an opportunity to to sing over something and a style of music that I've always enjoyed but never thought that I could, um, you know, be part of that pantheon. Because, you know, in my cue project, it's electro rock and it's a comfort zone. There's not a lot of screaming and there's not a lot of uh, – you know there's more of like a a fun goofiness with some some serious touches to it, but this was just you know intensity personified on an album and and it was really uh it was real cathartic for me to 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 take that step and 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 kind of play over the songs that the music that these guys were making so I think that the 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 market difference is that we just decided like we're gonna just heavy it up and do crazier stranger things with the production and and really try to take it in a, in a, in a a, a direction that is certainly more quote unquote metal, you know, than, than the first record was.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting because with the title track, uh, you could definitely hear things like Devin Townsend coming out of your voice. Um, You know, so it's interesting to hear you saying that, you know, you didn't think you were going to be able to pull something like that out of you, but yet, You know, your voice in certain parts sounds like, you know, one of the most probably iconic figures when it comes to singing in that style.
2: You know, it's funny you say that. I mean, and and I've read all the reviews, obviously, and Devin Townsend is a guy that um, is one of those guys that I I just didn't expect people to compare me to. Um, You know, Tom Mariah is another one. Um, uh, And Tom Mariah was more... The band you know the chris and brett saying they're sort of like a, you know they when, when i would sing certain things they're like oh yeah there's like a tom mariah feel to that you know and i'm not like i'm not a Devin townsend fan i'm not a slayer fan i mean i, I recognize the talent of those bands but those aren't the bands that i you know artists that i grew up listening to or listen to now um you know i'm uh you know my influences again are trent and and mike Patton and um and even like you know bands like that i like on the on the new wave side of things like uh you know bono and dave gone of, of of depeche mode and right um so to hear myself compared to guys like that is is really interesting to me and and one of my employees just gave me the last devin townsend record and it was really the first proper listen that i gave to his music mm-hmm. and and i'll say it. and unfortunately i'm still not much, I like it didn't blow me away but i now i get it like i listen to his stuff and i'm like yeah i kind of do sound like this guy but it's completely unintentional you know um but i again like i respect the guy's talent so if people compare me to Devin townsend i mean i take it as
0: a compliment gotcha which of the albums did they uh send along to you oh shit uh hold on a second i'll tell you it's one
2: that's um (laughs) What I found most interesting about it was that the comedy of it. Like, I did not... um,
0: Oh, uh, Ziltoid Ziltoid then? Yeah, Ziltoid the
2: Omniscient. Um,
0: Because he's put out two albums after that, two solo albums. And one, um, people sort of got upset at him for putting out because it's a really mellow album. It's called Key. And it's a lot of clean guitars, and and his voice really isn't, you know, screamy all over the place like he is on, you know, all the Strapping Young Lad stuff or the Steve Vai stuff or even with the Ziltoid album. Uh, he put another album out like two months after that called Addicted, which is more of an electronic rock album. Right. Uh, which is very interesting In my opinion, and I almost, you know, and I don't know if this is the case or not. I've never uh, spoken to Devin, uh, but um, he's taking an awful long time to put the two follow up albums together. They were supposed to be out, it was supposed to be four albums in less than half a year, and these last two albums were supposed to be, uh, you know, geared more towards his, you know, old school fans. So I don't know if, if, you know, the albums are taking so long because he's backpedaling now and making sure that, you know, he's feeding the need uh, to that niche market that he had created or if it's just that, you know, it's going to be that much more complex than what perhaps he did in strapping or or, or other things that he's done afterwards?
2: Well, I I think when you're a guy like that and and you kind of come from, you know, you come from an environment where you're part of something bigger and then you go out and, Now you're, you know, you're, you're, you you're not attached to any other band name. And it's not the sort of thing where it's, uh, it's sort of like a common interest thing between band members as far as direction goes that, you know, that's the ultimate empowerment. I mean, that's part of the sort of thing that I think every musician would like to explore. I mean, some, obviously people are more, uh, you know, they, they work better with other people. And they put out better product when they work with other people. But here's a guy who obviously, you know, you know, was kind of like with Vi, he was, you know, he was in the shadow of Vi and rightly so, because it was Vi. But now now he's able to do his own thing. And even though I didn't really care for the music on Ziltoid, I mean, I was certainly enamored with the fact that he had the balls to create. Create this, you know, this character. And, uh, and, and it's interesting to me. It's not, it doesn't resonate with me, but it makes me between the speech that you just gave about him and this, it makes me want to go explore his catalog, uh, you know, a little more. Cool.
0: And I will. <laughs> yeah, He's supposedly working on a Ziltoid part two as well. So that should be interesting. Um, Why did it make sense for you to put, return to earth together, as opposed to going back and doing another cue ball album. Uh,
2: cue ball for me had become, and, and, uh, you know, it's something different now, but at the time we're talking 2006, I'd been doing cue ball for seriously for four years with Ron Bumblefoot. Um, and, uh, I, I think at some point, You know, in every band that you do and every project that you do, it has a shelf life. And at that point, I thought things were. For the first time, they weren't um, going in the the direction that I wanted them to go in. Um, And a big part of the reason that was was not because of the quality of the music that we were putting out and not because that the industry was really at that point really starting to change with the, you know, with the evolution of the internet at that level. Um, But I couldn't, I couldn't keep a band together. You know, uh, you know, Ron had joined Guns N' Roses and he was, you know, he, it was and is essential to, to what Cube ball always was, even though it was my name on it, he, you know, he was as integral to the project as I was. He just, he just didn't, you know, that's just the sort of guy Ron is, he just didn't need his name, you know, emblazoned on the cover, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And he produced and he played guitar and he helped with some of the songwriting and he engineered all the tracks. I mean, uh, it's basically a guy coming in, you know, with a diorama and giving it to this other guy and he turns it into a painting, you know. Um, And for me, I needed a guy like that because I was never in a band where I wasn't the go-to guy for, you know, I was the lead guy as far as being able to put every, keep everything together. So now I was in an environment where I finally working with somebody who like is going to make me better. Um, right. But when G and R came a call in, you know, he had already been through some drama with them and in, in the year leading up. And I had signed to an indie label down in North Carolina and they made promises uh, when we put the Fortune Favors the Bald album out in 2004-2005. They would made promises that didn't come to fruition. Uh, and that's what really prompted me to start the label. And I knew that I could keep doing cue ball um, kind of on a restricted schedule. And I didn't want to give up on it because I thought we were unfortunately at that point when guns and roses had come a call and i think we were at our kind of creative peak as far as where we could have taken things and i thought the second album i put out fortune favors the bald was the best of the three because of that because we were focused on there was no distraction there was no bad you know there wasn't a ton of bad shit happening as far as disappointments um and then when Return to Earth came along, it was not only an opportunity to work with Brett again, who I'd worked in, I'd been in a band with you know, before Q-Ball, um, and I always had that sort of connection with as far as musical compatibility and songwriting compatibility. And then, of course, Chris, just to work with him in any capacity was something that I did not you know, want to um, pass up on. So like most guys who already have a day job and another band, I had to prioritize. And to me, return to earth was the thing that I really needed to focus on. And I put a cue ball out in 2007 and it was disjointed and it, it, it had some of Bumblefoot on it and it had some of bread on it. And, and, um, you know, I unearthed, I unearthed some old songs just for the sake of putting a full album out. And there's some songs on there that I'm really proud of. Most of the songs are the ones that I did with Bumblefoot, but, to me, to look back on it, it was a product of the fact that I had shifted my attention to Return to Earth. So now Cube Ball is the sort of thing that, you know, to me, that's my, my musical vanity project. And it's the sort of thing where the internet has allowed me, hey, if I want to put a song out, try to get it, you know, trying to get it out on a film soundtrack or just put it out just for as a free download or, or a standalone single and I get to work with other people and just put it out, And it's easy to do now that I can continue to do that. And that's what I'm doing. And Return to Earth is my quote unquote band. You know, that's the focus of my attention.
0: Okay. And um, touching on how you decided to work with Chris and Brett, was it a case where... Uh, you decided to pursue them? Did they come after you when they found out you were working on something new? Uh, how did the entire collaboration come together? Uh,
2: just like most uh, collaborations, at least in, in my world, it was sort of of a, a karmic thing where <laughs> everything kind of came together at the right time. Uh, Brett and I had already had a history of working in a band together and we, uh, in a band called The Substance together, I played keyboards and sang backing vocals. Again, I wasn't the focus. I was the young, new guy in the band and all these other guys had known each other for years and I kind of came into the band uh, during its you know middling stages and they were just a bunch of Jersey dudes playing alternative rock who were big metal heads at heart and... <laughs> I don't think Brett would argue that my participation in the band uh, band kind of like took it to a different level as far as the scope of what the music was all about, the focus, and the fact that at that point we really started getting attention from people. Um, and that made me feel good too because I had never been part of a band that was this close to getting attention to people as The Substance was. And we played a lot of big shows. We... Open for some big bands at the time. We signed with an unknown indie and put an album out, and went through the whole, um, you know, playing for every A and R dude on the planet. You know, the guy who signed <laughs> Kid Rock, Jason Flom, and uh, we actually had a handshake deal with um, with a, with a big major, and um, the Backstreet Boys were involved. It's don't ask. It was it was updating <laughs> myself, but at the same time, it was one of those stories that you know, we almost made it stories that unfortunately a lot of musicians have. So at some point I left the band, you know, I just, I I felt like we had too many albatrosses around our neck and I was still young and I was still the youngest dude in the band. And I felt like I was kind of being pushed out as far as the songwriting was going. There was definitely some, there was definitely some tension, you know, not, not tension in the way that like we felt uncomfortable around each other, but I felt that the, other people were telling the band what to do and the other guys in the band were listening. And I felt that we should have been doing something different. You know? Um, I honestly felt that we should just have been doing things on our own, which has become the norm now. But back then that was like unheard of.
0: Yeah. But yeah. I'm sorry. What did you say? No, no, no. Go ahead.
2: Well, Brett and I stayed in touch and we, again, I I met um, I met Brett through my day job in the radio industry, so we were still working in the same office, even though we weren't in the same band anymore. And I'm, you know, things thawed between us a little bit cause we were pretty tight. And, um, at some point, you know, but, but we never like, we were never not friends. It just became the sort of thing where we kind of had to warm up to the fact that this was what, this is the direction that either of us went and maybe cue ball would succeed or maybe the band would succeed after I left. But it was never like a rivalry thing or anything like that. And I always considered him a brother. You know, it was just that we were going through a hard time. And then in 2006, uh, you know, many years later, I think, you know, I always gave Brett the Cube all albums and asked his opinion. And he'll always tell you that he, uh, the song, the most popular song on the second album, John Hughes, he arranged it. And he always busts my balls about shit like that. Oh, where's my credit, bro? <laughs> uh, and Chris, um, I met through... The same band, the drummer in that band had to have back surgery and a mutual friend and fan of the band um, helped us out to find the replacement drummer for some recordings and some shows that we had to do. And that turned out to be Chris, who at the time was in Dillinger and really was, um, you know, he was in Dillinger. And whenever he was free from Dillinger, just like whenever he's free from Coheed now, he just wants to be working on music and other projects. So... There, again, there was a rapport. Brett and Chris became really good friends and still are, obviously. And when they started making music together in 2006, really properly for the first time, you know, the substance had come and gone and was done. I was still doing cue ball. And Chris, at the time, was kind of, you know, on his way out the door from Dillinger. So we were all sort of at interesting points in our life. And. They approached me. I was sitting in my office in my, in my middle management radio job in New York City, and Brett came in and he played. Uh, he said, "Hey, I got some like tracks that I'm working on with Chris. Do you want to release it on Bald Freak?" And I said, "Well, yeah, man. I want like you know I want to hear it de- definitely, but like I'd be excited to do something like that because these are my friends and Chris is involved in the project and and then they said and then that was to be expected. Like I didn't think that." that was an unreasonable request. And then Brett asked me if I wanted to sing in the band. And to me, it was a surprise because I wasn't the singer of the band I was in with, with Brett before I did a lot of backing tracks and stuff like that, but uh, it was a pleasant surprise. And of course I said, yes, it was the sort of thing where like, if you're wanted back by a guy who you had all this drama with really, and you have the opportunity to work with another dude, who, you know, you respect in the industry and you think is super talented, you don't say no, you know? <laughs> right. And that's, I mean, that's how it happened. The The other very short story, ironic part of it was that um, Chris, because I knew him back then when he was in The Substance, I asked him if he wanted to play drums and cue ball with me and Bumblefoot. And I, I, I'm sorry to say that that would have been a pretty interesting trio of, of uh, that never kind of came to fruition, just to put the two of those guys in the same project together. Uh, right. But unfortunately, you know, Chris was going through some shit at the time. Like he he flaked out on a couple of rehearsals, and um, you know, it never really happened. Like he he never he was supposed to play a show with us like early on, and it was the sort of thing where you know I didn't know the type of guy he was at the time, and it was the sort of thing. Well, this guy's not going to show up like to to rehearse with the band, and he obviously you know has too much going on. Right. So so that never really happened. It, it was kind of like. He was the the drummer in cue ball that never was. And and now, you know, he's the drummer in Return to Earth, and I'm the singer. So go figure. Like I said, it's all kind of has this sort of serendipitous feel to it, you know?
0: Cool. And uh, two things I want to point out there. Out of everything that you could have brought up... Uh, when ma- mentioning first of all Jason Flum, you brought up Kid Rock as opposed to I don't know how many countless legendary bands he's signed. Yes. and you had to throw the Backstreet Boys in there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's um, you know, I'm a product of the, you know, I'm a product of a guy who first really started having a serious music career in the late '90s. You know, right? And um, I was young. You know, it was the sort of thing where the sky was the limit. Um, Now I'm not young and the industry's changed. I mean, I'm not young by industry standards. I'm not an old man by any stretch of the imagination. And I feel like my career is kind of at its peak at a time where, you know, it makes me look back and say, you know, was I lucky or unlucky? Because Mm -hmm. um, things could have gone better and things could have gone worse. A lot of guys my age... Uh, you know get married, have kids, and give up you know, and they pick up the guitar or they they sit at the piano, and it's just a lark to them, you know um, right for me, it's a business I mean it's still a big, huge part of my life, and um you know I'm not going out on on eight month tours and I'm not playing huge arenas and but in today's day and age, not a lot of people are doing that at all. So Yeah,
0: that's what I was gonna, just going to say. <laughs> um,
2: when it comes to the Backstreet Boys and Kid Rock, yeah, I mean, those were the, you know, at the time that we were trying to, bec- this band The Substance was trying to become successful. I mean, the biggest bands on the planet were, you know, Creed and uh, Three Doors Down and Nickelback. And these were the bands that we were aspiring to, to you know, play at the level with. And we hated those bands. <laughs> you know and you know the backstreet boys were you know kevin richardson was a nice dude but the backstreet boys suck you know the backstreet boys <laughs> represented everything that i that i that basically started planting the seeds for everything that i hate about the music industry now it was bubblegum you know it was this mm-hmm. it was an idea it wasn't a band you know um and it was the sort of thing where it wasn't about you know kid rock too i mean i'll say the same thing kid rock was a joke he was like uh he was like a beastie boys wannabe
0: yeah
2: like hip-hop white trash dude and then the next thing i know he's you know he's playing southern fried rock with his with his wife (laughs) beater and his pork pie hat on and he's you know he's the look he's you know he's the snapshot of that white trash dude that everybody can relate to you know um and the Backstreet Boys were, you know, puppet masters. It's people, you know, people behind the scenes that are really running the show. And I feel like all these artists from today's top forty era are the the ancestors of those sort of bands. And right. to me, it was it, it was not that heartbreaking to not be included in the pantheon with that with those bands. In <laughs> retrospect, I, I'm kind of even though I'm not succeeding and don't have the the money. That those bands have or the or the prestige, I still feel like i'm there's some honesty and some truth to what i'm doing, you know
0: yeah, interesting that you mentioned that about kid rock, remember being in college radio back in like ninety three and receiving a it was like a seven inch, I think, yeah, and it was uh my Oedipus complex, I think, and the person that passed it along to me said. This guy will never make it. He's just a white trash version of the Beastie Boys. And lo and behold, a few years later, everything you just mentioned, you know, um, came about. So
2: that was exactly the way that I had described it to other people when I heard it was. um, Well, you live in Jersey. Did you always live in Jersey?
0: Yeah, I lived in Jersey up until about seven years ago. So what what was your college radio station? Uh, WCCM, uh, the County College of Morris radio station. We broadcast to, the quote-unquote number was 15,000 uh, people, which were, there were 15,000 students uh, that went to the campus, but we broadcasted on campus, and that was it. It went to uh, a few different parts of the actual um, uh, buildings, where, what did it go to, like, the library and the um, cafeteria, but if you were within a mile radius of the school, you could tune in.
2: Well, in Jersey, if you grew up in Jersey, then you obviously know about WSOU.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
2: WSOU was was playing metal, and every once in a while, I would hear Kid Rock in there, and I, w- I didn't get it. I'm like, I, I, the first couple times I heard it, I'm like, is is this the beastie boys? Cause I was a huge beastie boys fan and I certainly didn't recognize the music. And that was my introduction to kid rock. So when we went in to play for, um, Andy Karp, who was, who's working under Jason Flom at the time, uh, we, you know, it was what, that's how you, that's how you audition. Like you would go in, you'd go into a, a studio in, in, in Manhattan and people had heard your shit. you know this was the old school way of getting signed. You know <laughs> people had heard your shit on c d and now you needed to you obviously you would either need to set up a showcase for them at a club, but most times these guys wanted you to come to a studio and sit there and just watch you,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is like the most awkward way to perform in front of anyone. you know to me, it was like if you 're not feeding off a crowd, then your performance is never going to be standard but i think it was more about you know again what does the singer look like i get to talk and you know i get to talk to the guys and meet with them it wasn't just about seeing how we're going to perform on a on a bullshit stage in a rehearsal room and andy carp was one of the guys we played with and first impression was he's wearing a kid rock hat (laughs) and and i know you know i know about kid rock and brett knows about kid rock and we're not you know, back then especially, we, we were not, like, the most pleasant of critics, you know. <laughs> Brett hasn't changed a bit. He'll still shit over anything, you know. But um, we both, like, thought Kid Rock was a joke. And we're thinking to ourselves, like, okay, we're playing for the guy who, like and, – and all this guy could talk about was how we probably just, like, made a note of his hat, you know. we Not in a derogatory way. We we were probably trying to be pleasant about it, you know. Uh, right. Right. Because we're obviously still trying to impress this guy. We want to get signed to a record deal. Um, so one of us said, oh, Kid Rock. And he started talking about him in this, like, glowing light. This He's going to be huge. And that only made it worse. Like, And then Brett and I, like, went out of the room <laughs> and were like, "We kid-? you know, is this guy kidding? Kid Rock fucking sucks, you know. <laughs> um, and, of course, you know, of course, the- Andy Carr passed on us kid rock became huge so i guess we were the jerk offs <laughs> after all but, <laughs> but that's really you know that's how that's how it was for us at the time like trying to trying to live up to the standard of what was popular at the time and right around then was when i think i realized like i don't want to live up to the standard of what's popular you know i want to right i want to live up to the standard of what few people will think is is less people will think is good but they'll really be the people that i want to Put my music out there too you know
0: gotcha and never in a million years would I think that I'd be able to tie in Caddyshack with one of my podcasts but when you mention the hat the first thing to come to my mind is when Ted Knight is trying on the hat Rodney Dangerfield walks in and says hey what do you get a bowl of soup for wearing a hat like this it looks good on you though <laughs> <laughs> that's a
2: great movie man
0: absolutely um what does the future hold in store for Return to Earth? Um, as
2: I say this, Chris is just back from the latest Kohee tour. They just got back from Australia. And he's doing a month and a half upcoming in April and May. And I think they're maybe doing you know, a festival or two here later in the year. But for the first time since Automata came out, back in August of last year, he's home, you know? So when he's home, he wants to, you know, he wants to either be making music or out promoting this band. And um, right now promoting this band at this point in the band's career is playing shows, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It's something that I've been pushing us to do for a while. And um, hopefully it'll be something that we can take advantage take advantage of in, in you know, in dribs and drabs. I mean, the point is, we're all at a we're all at a place in our lives where we can't get on the bus, you know, get on the bus and go away for 3 months and, you know, without $5 per day per diem. It's not that not, not and you know, I don't mean to sound crass or pretentious, but it's not that we uh it's not just that we can't do it, it's that we don't want to, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. um we're all at levels of our careers and our lives where it's the sort of thing that's not uber important to us but at the same time i appreciate and i think that the other guys have finally come around to that that we need to you know we need to do something you know we need to we need to jump on a tour for two weeks or three weeks with a bigger band who will open people's eyes to the to to who we are and, and the live show and it's starting you know it's starting next week we're starting to play some local shows around the New York and New Jersey area. We're playing at the Saint up in uh, down in Asbury Park on the Jersey Shore on March 18th. And and that will be sort of a litmus test to, you know, to how we're going to be able to pull off a live set. And we're going to try to jump onto some festivals. We're going to try to get on a tour here and there and we'll make it work. I mean, it'll never be unless something amazing happens with the music, which at, the, at this point in the music career, things like, you know, those sort of um, you know, grassroots miracles, you know, happen less and less because of, uh, you know, because of the, the, the impact that radio had doesn't have that sort of impact anymore. And the impact that MTV had doesn't have that sort of impact anymore. And it's just the Wild West show. We're just another interesting, you know, prog metal rock band with some some cool songs. I don't I don't know what would ever get us to a level of, of success that would say, OK, we need to tour all the time now. Um, so we'll do it, you know, we'll do it, but we'll do it at our own, at our own pace. And we always have to keep Chris's schedule with Coheed in mind. Um, and while all this is going on, while we're still trying to kind of make sense of all the the touring and stuff like that, we're, you know, we're already writing another record. We already have about seven songs done. And at some point we'll have the conversation with Metal Blade, um, you know, about, the prospects of, of putting it out when and, and how um but it's already taking an interesting direction it's already sort of um uh becoming its own entity as far as i feel that automata was different from captains it's uh it's more introspective it's more ethereal there's a lot of more elements to to bands like sigaros and peter gabriel in it but still mixed with the blast beats and the and the the intense riffage and, and the screaming and stuff like that. So it'll have that trademark sound that I think we're finally building for ourselves, but it's going to go off into some interesting directions, I think. But as usual, it's the sort of thing where, you know, Chris sends us a, Chris sends a track or Brett sends a track, or I, now I've been sending a lot of ideas. I have a piano up in my, uh, in my living room that I'm able to track off of. So now I can, you know, employ whatever musical talents I have to the process and kind of be part of it. And the feedback I've gotten from the other guys is that they want to include a lot of this stuff on the album. So, you know, we have a, we have a good dynamic as far as, you know, the decision-making process goes. And that's been a refreshing thing in in a band is that we all are very opinionated, but we all kind of, you know, we all kind of, like I said, we make each other better. So, um, uh, I'm interested to see what the full album is going to sound like, but so far we're all pretty excited about it. And I don't know, you know, I, I, in today's day and age, you have to decide, you know, well, the, the, Auto Mod is still like unknown to most of the world, but Metal Blade's done promoting it, you know, I mean, and, and I can't blame them. Like they have a million other things to promote. Right. Um, so for us, it's even though it's still fresh and it should be fresh to a lot of new people and i'm still promoting it on you know on the bald freak and wherever i can um uh, it's time you know it's time to kind of move forward and think about the next record and we're we're already doing that so
0: any timetables set for when you think that'll uh come out or just a, a wait and see process to see if you fill any more uh tracks out um
2: I think the focus, you know, I mean, it's the day to day thing because when Chris is gone, he's gone. I mean, it's you try to, you know, it, it's cool that we're Skyping and, 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 uh, and, you know, and we're in, we're in different continent and everything or a different country. But, um, you know, when Chris is gone, it's, it's difficult to, to get a hold of him. Uh, you know, he was in Australia, so he doesn't really get any further away than that.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Um, so, you know, as a matter of fact, he and I had just finished, um, the latest cue ball song that, that we did together. He did a lot of programming and, and, uh, production on it. So I had sent him the finished version. I had just come back from Bumblefoot studio yesterday and we finished mixing it. So I'd sent it to him. And again, that's usually like sending up a smoke signal to Chris is when you send the music, that's when you you hear from him. And you know, the email I got was like late last night. He's like, I just got back from 26 hours of flying and, and the song sounds awesome and I'll call you tomorrow. So I think after this conversation today, I'd probably be better able to answer uh, the, the timetable thing. But, you know, when you sign with another label and you know, for better or for worse, we signed with Metal Blade. It's hard for it's hard for anybody to say, yeah, it's going to come out, you know, in six months or it's going to come out in eight months. Um, I think we'll probably have a full album done if Chris is going to be home for most of the next few months you know, by the summertime or the fall. Does that mean that the record's going to come out then? I don't know. But, um, you know, I'd like to put records out as much as possible now. I think you have to. I think mm. without, you know, without sacrificing quality, um, I think as long as you have ideas for songs that are good and you can get the stuff done in a timely manner as far as mixing and mastering and tracking and recording, it's certainly a process. Um You know, I'd like to put albums out every year if I could, you know, which would mean that, you know, we still have nine months to put this record out. But, um, you know, Metal Blade will have their say in it and hopefully they'll be they'll be open to it. I mean, I couldn't tell you that the first record did great. And I assume that it didn't as far as, you know, what the standard for great is in today's day and ages, as far as sales and exposure goes. But, um, uh, you know, to me, they kind of knew that we were going to be in a situation where. You know, we weren't going to be able to tour in the traditional way because of Chris's involvement with Coheed. And they still signed us. So if they were open-minded to that idea, you know, when they signed us, I I would like to think that they'll be equally as open-minded to, you know, to putting records out when they're ready to be put out.
0: Right. Okay. And does it make sense for you guys as a band to put an album together? Or does it make sense for you guys to just do... uh one track at a time, sort of like what you're doing with, um, with cue ball and with Bumblefoot.
2: Uh, you know, that's something that I think we would have to discuss with the label. You know, I, I don't, I don't think it's a terrible thing to do. I think the reason I'm doing it with cue ball is that I don't think cue ball would, could survive if I waited, you know, two, two and a half years between putting records out. Um, <laughs> it's barely surviving in spite of that and by again by surviving is you know surviving to me at this point means for as long as i want to do it i mean for as long as i want to do it and there's you know 200 300 500 5000 50000 people interested in what i have to put out there it's my muse you know i mean i i'll continue to do it i can continue to doing it keep doing it for myself and just lock the the songs up on on a drive and and never release them but you know, to me, that's what's the point of being an artist if you can't, you know, share your art with other people. And I, um, for Return to Earth, I think that it would it wouldn't be a terrible idea to do the same thing. And maybe it's something we'll talk about. But I don't think I I, I don't know, but I don't think anybody at Metal Blade has sort of had to deal with with a situation like that. I don't think any of I don't think Metal Blade has gone towards doing the you know, kind of shifting over to the the non-traditional ways of releasing an album. You know, they still put CDs out. They still have a ton of fans and a ton of, a ton of bands that have a ton of fans. And most of those bands from, from what I can see, quote unquote, succeed from touring their balls off, you know? Right. Um, That's still, as far as the metal world is concerned, because metal is still huge in Europe and especially out of, you know, North America, it's still pretty huge. And it's still pretty huge here. And, and, you know, you have to just look, you know, look a little harder. Um, that's their formula, you know, and they'll get their press and they'll get their, you know, they'll get their covers on Metal Hammer and Decibel and, uh, you know, for their bigger bands. But, you know, you don't, you don't see metal, you don't hear metal blade bands on the radio. You don't see metal, blade, uh, metal blade bands on television. You know, you don't really see a lot of metal blade bands like in movie soundtracks and stuff like that. So, but they're obviously doing something right. So, you know, they're, um, we're not really a band that fits into that. You know, we're a DIY band. I mean, we're a ball freak mm-hmm. music band at the end of the day. And, and we still are a ball freak music band. I just, uh, when you ask questions about, you know, timelines and, and really how we want to continue to release stuff, I think knowing that we're on metal blade, you know, we want to put another album out because mm-hmm. I think we're expected to, it's just a matter of, and I, and I'm not, you know, we're, we're not, a, I'm an album rock guy. I think all the guys on the. Uh, in the band are album rock guys and because we grew up with the same you know we're metal fans too so we're metal fans we're fans of metal blade and we're fans of that sort of dynamic of how to put things out but you know the industry is changing if you want to maintain and you want to even do more than maintain which most bands want to do you want to escalate to the next level um you know you kind of kind of roll with the punches so to me yeah. the, to me hopefully we'll find a happy medium and we'll, we can get creative together about it they're pretty open minded you know they're a pretty open minded label and and that's what attracted us to them in the first place so we'll see but um all i know is we got about 8 really interesting good songs that have been very personal to me um you know i've written the lyrics and and done the vocals on on all of them so far usually it's more of like a joint effort as far as the, the songwriting goes but um I think Brett and Chris um are kind of like letting me do my thing because they feel like I'm I've been putting, you know, my output has been better um, you know, since we started making this record. So we'll see. Okay. We'll see what happens.
0: Cool. We shall have to see. Absolutely. We got Um <laughs> um getting back to what you were just mentioning, being fan or being a fan of uh metal you uh mentioned Trent Reznor a bunch of times you mentioned Dave Gahn from Depeche Mode as well mm-hmm. um, who was the one artist or group to really light the spark and and make you want to get involved in music
2: you know to me there are there are so many different sparks that are that kind of you know light up the whole path for a musician. Um and to me, like the first early spark, I would have to, you know, I'd trace it all the back excuse me, I trace it all the way back to my childhood. You know, my dad was the sort of guy who he built his own like uh stereo equipment. This was, you know, in this in the late nineteen mm-hmm. seventies. He's building the, it was this thing called Heath Kit. And you would um they would basically send you all the parts and, and instructions. And you'd sit there with a soldering iron and, and, you know, and basically all the tools of the trade and you'd put the the shit together. And it was, I mean, back then that was, I don't know, I don't know what the hell prompted my dad to do that sort of thing, but he basically built an EQ and a reel to reel machine. And, uh, and, uh, it was, it was pretty amazing, but I, I was, I was actually um, talking to somebody about this yesterday. Um, used to make mixes on his on he had a reel-to-reel machine and that was the way he made mixes This was before cassettes that's how would you if you wanted to make a mix you basically take the source material from a record or even a cd if, if you know if, if you still had a reel-to-reel machine in the 80s which of course my crazy dad did um <laughs> you'd you know you basically put a mix together on a reel-to-reel and he would make reel-to-reels and he would just blast them in the basement over and over again and the band that always came to the forefront and he, he liked a lot of really cool music, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Billy Joel, um, Elton John, uh, deep purple Fleetwood Mac. But the, the band that was always on and the band that always had had an impact for me from the first moment that I ever decided that I wanted to sing or play the drums or play keyboards was the Beatles. And, um, when I started doing my first band, where I first decided, you know, I was never like the cool kid with the long hair, the the rebel. I lived in like, a, you know, I lived in a fairly strict uh, household where music was always on. But I was I was a good kid. I was never out raising hell or making out with girls or hanging out with the wrong crowd. Um, So the Beatles was, you know, the Beatles was kind of like representative of the, the sort of band that. When I became a teenager, I, that was the band that I sort of wanted to play their songs. And really, it was the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, I remember. If you go back to, and I probably still have them somewhere, like those first tapes of anything you ever did. You know, I was playing drums with my friend Scott, who was playing guitar, and we were doing Beatles songs. Um, very badly, obviously, but <laughs> that's what we were doing. Um, so so the Beatles is definitely, and and to this day, they're probably like the band that I look at, you know, even the cue ball stuff that I'm doing lately now, it's more, now that it's sort of about collaborating with other people, it's more about experimentation, you know, doing different things with different people and different songwriting styles. And I think the Beatles were the first band to really, you know, to really do that the right way, you know, to to kind of think outside of the box in their comfort zone, at least obviously in the second half of their career. And obviously... Probably had a lot to do with the fact that they decided to take a lot of drugs, but um, (laughs) that's definitely um, that's definitely the band that had the biggest impact on me, wanting like taking a fascinating look at music. Um, But as far as bands that actually got me to say, "Hey, I want to be an artist and get up on stage and perform and stuff like that," I mean, Nine Inch Nails is definitely one. Uh, You know, Metallica was another one metallica was like my first real true taste of like you know top of the mountain metal and you know maiden and judas priest those bands didn't resonate with me um like metallica did i you know i grew up i was five years too late on those bands you know i feel like if i maybe if i grew up uh you know in in the 70s instead of the 80s it would have been those bands for me but uh it was always metallica for many years and and then once i started really picking up instruments and getting behind keyboards and electronics it was it was definitely nine inch nails that was pretty hate machine was you know the album for me to to be like wow this is just some dark dude who's just like fucking around with different processors and (laughs) keyboards and writing some really dark personal stuff um and it's it's magnetic you know there's just something magnetic about it it has those elements of of the new wave music that I had grown up to, to starting to really like as a teenager, like tears for fears and, and new order and, 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 and shit like that and Depeche mode. Um, and it had taken it to this dark place that I related to, you know? Um, and to me, like now that's, I still am that dude, <laughs> you know, I'm still <laughs> that dude who like wants to write happy, fun you know beatles you know uh, beatles like uh, lady madonna bullshit and but um for the most part i'm um, especially in return to earth obviously i'm uh i'm writing this real like dissonant dystopian sort of music and singing about stuff that's really personal to me and um it, it, he you know that that band certainly like laid the blueprint for for that sort of career that i'm having now
0: you know so so you go in thinking lady madonna and you come out with that's what i get.
2: <laughs> exactly. It's something i can never have, right? right. Um,
0: uh
2: i don't I don't know if i go in thinking it, you know. I think I think it's a lot easier to write a happy song than it is to write uh you know, a song about controversy or or misery or or frustration or whatever negative sort of um adjective you want to use is um but that's a person's comfort zone you know life is problems and and music is catharsis for me music is music is my way to kind of escape from reality you know um right and i think that's a lot of people don't write music for that reason a lot of people write music to fuck chicks a lot of people you know (laughs) i mean Seriously. I mean, when I was in high school, a lot of people that I, that I ran in the same circles with and and knew from other bands just wanted to fuck chicks, you know, or do drugs Mm -hmm. or, and that was the excuse that was, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was part Mm -hmm. of the the package. And me, it's, you know, I mean, to me for growing up, that wasn't me. Like it was the rock and roll. And then I got older and then, you know, the sex and the drugs just became, you know, became part of regular life. Um, but what neither of those things were things that I was, um, I, I knew how to do very well. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, so the rock and roll was my haven. I was in my in my little like room that was the size of a broom closet in my parents' house, um, you know, with racks of of keyboards and and cassette tapes and and a, and a, a Kai SO1 sampler that looped, you know, like th- five seconds worth of of audio at a time, you know, it was still like the dinosaur age for electronic music. But, um, and you know, Trent was doing what he was doing. So that was my muse. That was my, that was the guy who I wanted to be. You know, I saw the video for nine inch nails and he's up on stage with the crazy hair. And they have all the, like, you know, they have all the the crazy, like industrial shit hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. And I'm like, what is this madness? (laughs) You know, but it made sense to me at all the same time. duck phone.
0: Anyway. (laughs) There's actually a duck phone in the uh, Bald Freak House.
2: Bald Freak headquarters, there's the the duck phone. That's just the ringer on my phone, bro. (laughs) It would be cool to get a duck phone, though. I'm sure they they make one.
0: If there's anyone listening to this episode and knows of a duck phone, please let us know. (laughs) So that uh, Ron can get his hands on a duck phone. Oh,
2: that sounds perverted, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) can't wait to get my hands on that duck phone.
0: Similar to a question that I presented to you earlier, uh, if you were to go back and take part in the recording, uh, in the recording or writing of any album, what album would that be?
2: Oof, um... Again, it's, it's hard to just pinpoint one, um, you know, one of, one of my favorite albums still to this day that, that sort of makes me, you know, there's one thing about the album that, that makes, makes me kind of say, maybe I wouldn't want to be, but just from the creative portion of it, I'd probably say Abbey Road by the Beatles. Okay. Um, because I mean, when, when, the problem is when you're in a band who was as big as the Beatles at that time, you know it certainly changes the dynamic of the expectations of what a record is supposed to sound like. You know, um, a band like that, you know, the, the, probably didn't feel the pressure because of how talented they were. But I imagine I would feel the pressure of, well, we have to, you know, every record that we put out, oh, we have to outdo Sgt. Pepper, we have to outdo Rubber Soul, we have to outdo you know, revolver. Um, and they did it. I mean, really in the last real record that they made together, even though there was a lot of, um, fuss and fight between the band and the band was really starting to fall apart. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, understanding what, you know, what, uh, drama and, and sort of that, uh, sort of tension between people create sometimes. um, you know, being part of that would be certainly from a personal standpoint be hard to handle. I mean, um but at the same time, it's about, you know, it's about the, the finished product and the finished product of, of that record to me is is just amazing because of the fact that they were crumbling. You know, they were um, they were pretty much done as a band and it wasn't like, you know, Return to Earth being done as a band or or, you know, some some. Random you know band, this was the Beatles coming apart and um right i I think uh, i don 't think that 's the sort of environment that you know that 's kind of like going to outer space like if you 're asking me if i you 're bad <laughs> enough you 're asking me to go back in time, but you 're making me go back in time to outer space, and I guess if i 'm going <laughs> back in time, I might as well take it you know take it up a notch and go to outer space, and to me being to to just even be a fly on the wall for those sessions and just to to kind of see um you know probably what was going on with all these guys as they were making this amazing album um is uh you know would have been you know completely surreal
0: that that is interesting um substituting billy preston for ron scalzo
2: yeah there you go <laughs> billy preston is pretty awesome too he he certainly his presence on those on those later recordings certainly probably, um, you know, uh, made made a huge difference as far as just kind of being the glue that that was needed to you know prevent everything from falling apart on a lot of those tracks. What's up, everybody? This is Ron Scalzo from Return to Earth, and you have the pleasure of listening to Mars Attacks Radio.
0: altercation of man from return to earth great great track coming off of automata you can pick that up right now on itunes or you can go to ron's website bald freak music i'm sorry BaldFreak.com. i'm mixing it up with the twitter if you want to follow ron on twitter it is bald freak music on twitter ron is extremely accessible now with this i hope people don't start bombarding him or at least if they do pick up his CDs and help him out <laughs> not that he's asking for help or anything but you know throw the man a bone um in any event uh great great album definitely um d- definitely worthwhile checking out both of the return to earth albums and again i mean you could hear uh ron's commentary throughout the interview there very down to earth guy and like i said very approachable via Twitter so uh, let's get into the new Bumblefoot track that I promised a little earlier on towards the beginning of the actual podcast and like I described it earlier it's got a little style a little swagger some hard rock to it Ron on vocals Ron on some awesome ass guitars and um, yeah Check it out for yourself. The name of the track is Invisible by Ron Bumblefoot Thaw. Again, check that out on iTunes or BaldFreak.com. They also have a lot of cool items that you can purchase right there on BaldFreak.com. Autographed CDs with a portion of the money going to uh, an MS foundation that uh, Bumblefoot has worked with for several years. Uh, You can actually listen to the interview that I did with Bumblefoot and he explains his involvement with this foundation and um he gets he goes a little bit more in depth into the whole subject and why he does the autographed CDs and everything else so i uh, want to thank Ron Scalzo for coming on uh it was definitely a pleasure to speak to him and uh anything we can do here to help him out and help the cause you know more than happy to do so And I want to remind you guys, once again, like I mentioned at the uh, top of the show, you can listen to or download any of these episodes from MarsAttacksRadio.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Uh, You can also drop me a line, send me an email, and let me know what you think. Victor at MarsAttacksRadio.com. And uh, from there, we also have the Twitter, like I mentioned before, Mars Aries 2005 and that's Aries, spell A-R-I-E-S. And what else? Yes, the Facebook group. Uh, if any of this is confusing and you can't find it on your own, uh, just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com, and right there from the homepage, you can click on the links and it'll take you to the appropriate locations. Uh, what else? Uh, just remind you that um, we have Mars Attacks Radio every Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays on MarkStriegelRadio.com. That's Stream A. Uh, every Thursday, or every so many Thursdays since I've been busy lately, um, we debut new episodes. And uh, we have a mixed bag of different things that we do there. I mean, last week was mixed bag of a bunch of different uh, tracks that I've been listening to lately. Uh, before that, we had uh, a guitar, Gunslingers, and you know, a bunch of different uh, interesting things that we put together for you guys. Uh, that's all just music. We keep all the interviews for the podcast. Uh, we tend to find out that, or, or we've found out, I should say, that people prefer to listen to the interviews via the podcast format as opposed to radio. And, um,. That is pretty much it. There are some big news coming along the way. Uh, I can't get into it yet, but I will on April Fool's Day, as a matter of fact. We will start to let the cat out of the bag. But there is something big that uh, that is coming to MarsAttacksRadio.com to fusion my spanish language blog and podcast and radio show and uh, also the third uh podcast is uh or can be found at victor m ruiz that is r-u-i-z as in zebra.com that is the incoherent ramblings of victor m ruiz we do a bunch of different things there uh we sort of go beyond the you know boundaries of hard rock and metal play some Spanish music, play some um, uh, stuff that's maybe just rock, some pop stuff, Uh, played some Johnny Cash the last uh, episode, and talked a hell of a lot about wrestling. So wrestling, movies, TV, and music. (laughs) It's basically what you can find there. So uh, that's pretty much it. Again, thanks to Ron. Thanks to you guys for checking this episode out. And again, send in your comments. Victor at marsattacksradio.com that's pretty much it we'll wrap things up with another track from Return to Earth this is Night of the Exploding Razors see you next time right here on Mars Attacks